Hi, I'm Steve Addison, and this is the 200th episode of the Movements Podcast, a podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today, I talk to Alan Hirsch and the team at 100 Movements about the rise and fall of movements, a roadmap for leaders. All right, and welcome to the 100 Movements uh, webcast. Today, we have Steve Addison joining us from Melbourne, Australia. Um, so we're crossing a few continents here and quite a, quite a many time zones um, in our conversation today. So we're excited, Steve, to have you um, and have you share uh, about the current work you're doing, um, current book project you've got going on, um, some of the excellent ways that you're leading out some movement thinking um, both in Australia and some global conversations. So want to just ask you to introduce yourself to, to our audience and share a little bit about what's going on in your world. Okay. Well, um, based here in Melbourne, where uh, my wife Michelle and I lead a, a small mission agency called Move, and my life's focus and the focus of Move is to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. So... Uh, um, more importantly, I'm the grandfather of uh, Jackson, three and a half, and Macy, one and a half, and we have four adult adult children. So um, that's a little bit about me. You can ask questions if you need to know more. Sure. So a, a quirky thing here, Jess, is that uh, Steve and I went to seminary together. Wow. We used to sit dreaming about movement way even back then. We used to go yeah. talk about that. So it goes back a long way. We, we would drink, drink coffee in Camberwell, and uh, we came up with the real, it's, it's got to be movements, and then we looked at each other and said, but who's, who's going to lead that? We don't know anyone who can do this. And wonderful, we look around now, and there's all sorts of people who um, have, have captured the vision of uh, disciple-making movements around the world. Mm. So what? So so maybe starting there at some of those origins, what are some of the things that you and Alan talked about that you see have been were prophetic vision and have borne fruit? So some some of the ways that that um, what's happening today harkens back and, and is confirmation for those conversations. And and then maybe what are some of the things that you just had no idea was coming? Either it's really different than what you thought, or maybe it's missing still. Well, um, I have to go back even a few more years than that. Uh, for me, I was, uh, I was, Michelle and I were planting a church and uh, walked, walked into a, uh, in the second year, went very well, but in the second year we walked into a church fight and uh, all of a sudden uh, my prayer life went through the roof and I just spent a lot of time just in the Word and, and pursuing God out of desperation. And, um, you know, it really began when I said, okay, Lord, I'm, I'll hand my life back to you. Because I, I thought I was the world's best church planter at that stage. And um, I'll hand the church back into your hands. Uh, what's your agenda? And it was after about three months of, of that, he, he left me wondering for a while where I just had a powerful encounter with God and he just... I just sensed strongly that his agenda wasn't just one new church, but a whole new generation of churches. So Alan and I, I guess we'd been at, at college together, and, and then we, you know, not, not long after that, we started uh, catching up. And I think we both could tell, you know, when the Christian church isn't, isn't getting the job done. You know, um, the, there's something, there's got to be more. And it was really through just our reading of scripture, of history, discussions that, you know, that whole movement concept began to sort of take shape. Yeah. And about that time, I just started reading any, anything I could on the topic in, in scripture. And, and, uh, and, and Steve had, <clears throat> so in the intervening time from my being at seminary, uh, he had ended up uh, after a while studying uh, at Fuller um, and, you know, studying movements. Or actually, interestingly, the kind of the role of the apostle 
or the apostolic. So yeah. his, his, his doctor ministry, so it, it was his demon, wasn't it? The doctor mm. ministry thesis yeah. was very early stages of, you know, someone actually trying to grapple with, you know, re-articulation of the apostolic. So, yeah, you know, and actually, I started it with that, and the more I got into it, the more I realized it's not about just one spiritual gift being recognized and renewed. It's actually about the whole picture. It's about movements. And um, and I thought, oh, maybe I, I should, uh, you know, jump off this horse and jump on the, and you don't you don't change horses in midstream. So I finished out that whole dissertation on on the apostolic and then just passionately began pursuing the wider topic of movements. And both, you know, at this time, you know, the Lord's eventually called us out of that church. There was a great resolution, um, you know, unity returned, life returned. And then about a year later, uh, our calling was to go and pioneer again. So while I'm I'm reading all of these, you know, a friend of mine when I visited London, he said I'd been sent, getting books delivered to his place because they're cheaper in England. And he said, Steve, you read the weirdest books, you know. <laughs> so I'm doing all this stuff, and but I'm I'm a church planter on the front line. I'm working uh, three days a week as a church planter and three days a week as a builder's labourer, and just um, you know. That and this has been um, one of the surprises that there's there's this two tracks going on. One is to wrestle with the principles and the big picture of movements, and you know what is it that Jesus started? What does that look like today? Because he's our movement pioneer. Um, but there's this other theme going on that surprises me where God is doing a deep work in my life. Um, he, you know, it's not just about the strategy, the mission, and all of this big picture stuff. Um, you know, they were very hard years in that second church plant. And, um, and there's a work going on within me, and often movement pioneers don't realise this. They, they think, especially the guys, think it's strategy and principles. We'll buy Steve's book, we'll buy Alan's book or whatever. And that's one thing. Yeah. But there's this whole other agenda God has in us. And Paul says it's especially this apostolic gift. You know, every believer is going to suffer some way. But especially this role, you know, do you really want to put your hand up for it? He's sort of saying because it's it's not just the spiritual warfare, but God is going to do a work in you and it's hard. So I discovered that, and that was a surprise. And it's been tough. I mean, you know, it's been it's not been the easiest path for you anyway, isn't it, Steve? I mean, struggle, you know, in a good way. You know, like in the, the, you've you've demonstrated real character, and you know, in those circumstances, you've grown deeply. As you know, if you you've, you've stayed true to your calling. It's great, bro. So, yeah, and I I have a, a background in depression, um, and 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 yet that's even part of the mix of rest. And and I this is one of the things I picked up when I looked at uh, movement founders, and you know the just finished this book, uh, the rise and fall of movements, and it's the life cycle of movements and what's driving the rise and fall. And every founder just about that I look at, and I, I look at specifically Francis of Assisi, you know, there's always this deep wrestle with God. Um, and often the innovative breakthroughs, the innovative insights are the byproduct of um, often quite difficult circumstances. It's like God's got to unravel us in order to remake us. And especially, um, you know, especially someone like Francis of Assisi or the same, same principle for, for John Wesley, um, often founders are, are severely tested, um, but they discover the reality of God in that so that the movement bears that, that DNA. Uh, two, two questions, Steve, related really to what you're just saying. What, one was, 
I would love to hear you talk more of the the hidden life of a movement leader. So you, you'd said uh-huh. the comment of its strategy, its tactics, its charisma, mm. its mojo, it's it's all of that. It's the sort of whiteboard platform presence, connector sort of side that so often we we default to in the Western world, especially will sort of elevate and almost deify at points. And and you've talked about the hidden life, the struggles and the discovering the reality of God. I'd love you just Francis of Assisi, others, yourself, what what are some of the sort of the realities of the hidden life? What are some of the marks or the disciplines, the the intimacy? You've talked about prayer. How how would you describe that journey? What does that look like, feel like? What what are key battles, battlegrounds to be won? And places to to sort of find that deeper reality to build almost the character rather than competency of a of a movement leader. Well, um, you know, I've been on this journey. I, I think it's almost thirty years, and um, and probably twenty five years wrestling with the life cycle. Um, even way back those those days, um, you know, Alan was feeding me some some key insights and the like. But it was really only two years ago that, for me, uh, the penny dropped, um, if that's a phrase you understand. But, you know, the realisation came that we could take the, that movement life cycle and, and impose it on the church, you know, just like a business paradigm or an organisational paradigm. And it'd still be helpful. You know, we look at birth, growth, maturity, decline, and decay. So that's helpful if you're leading uh, in any sphere. But what makes it different if it's the mission of God? And for me, the aha moment is going to sound very sort of unexpected or, or expected, sorry. It's I looked at Jesus. And here between his life in as a carpenter in Nazareth and him launching the movement, you know, the, the coming king, there's these two stories, uh, his baptism and his wilderness temptation. And these are like his passing out exam. You know, this is where the father said, this is what it's all about. And uh, we don't have time to sort of retell them, but, you know, I... I just I looked at them and the three themes that just hit me so clearly is here he is, a son surrendered to the living word of his father. He is going to obey the father. You know, when the father speaks to him at his baptism, the father quotes scripture. <laughs> you know, when Jesus does battle, you know, this is the living word of God. He's, he quotes Deuteronomy three times to the devil. So there's nothing else that, well, he does say some other things, but he's, he's, that's his basis. So, and, and he's going to fulfill all righteousness by going to the cross um, in fulfillment of the scriptures. So he's a man, the word of God, but the man under the authority of the living word. He's obedient. And that's not just an intellectual thing. That's a moral and spiritual thing. Secondly, he's a man filled, empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit comes on him at his baptism. The Spirit um, literally casts him into the wilderness. The Spirit leads him back into Galilean power to launch the movement. And then, then lastly, he's committed to the core missionary task. He, the enemy is trying to dissuade him. There's got to be another road except the cross. But he's come to give his life a ransom for many. He's come so that the gospel of the forgiveness of sin is going to go to the ends of the earth. And that's, you know, that making of disciples who are learning to follow and obey him is his core missionary task. And it'll cost him his life. So I, they're the three things that I think are driving the rise and fall of movements. Now, we can then look at, yeah, but how did he flesh this out? And that's when we begin to get into the stuff, the strategy stuff. I call that those first three identity. Strategy is just things like uh, pioneering leaders, apostolic leaders, and all that entails, uh, contagious relationships, rapid mobilization of workers, and then finally adaptive methods. 
So we've got identity and we've got strategy. But what's driving it is the identity piece. And for a long time, I was just fixated on the strategy piece. You know, it's like, well, just here's, you know, we'll do this. We'll have these things in place. <clears throat> and and yet you go back to it. Now, how do you not only drive the rise of a movement, but how are movements renewed when they stray from the center? By returning to identity, mm. the word, the spirit, the mission. Um, and then fleshing that out through the strategy. Now that and and that leads that probably my second question was going to be: as movement is sparked, mm-hmm. how do, how do you actually maintain and and scale that to sort of not just one generation, one yeah. leader, one moment, yeah. one time? So my my reflection was: so often things start well. And then it drifts towards personality-driven or brand organization-driven, or it becomes safety overmanaged, sort of institutionalized. So that that was my second question of as there's a sort of strong start, that maturity piece, how how does that continue rather than and and not just, I suppose, in the life of the leader, but in the kind of core community, because the danger is it can become echo chamber or or tribe becomes clique so there's there's challenges aren't there in that in those growth phases so yeah so the thing is the return to core principles that's what holds the growth and actually helps it to continue well in birth in that birth phase the founder and the founding group have to embody this thing because there's nothing else than who they are and the vision, the mission. That they don't have anything else than 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 the cause and the calling. And 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 so um, these things are caught, not just taught. So they had, and and that's why there's such often a severe testing and refinement in the life of that leader, because. You know, God is is planting a seed, and and it's got to grow. And that doesn't mean they're perfect, but but in the growth phase, and you see, John Wesley is a great case study of this. At the beginning of it, that leader embodies what the movement is. A bit, some of you might remember John Wimber, and he was very he embodied the vineyard. You know, <clears throat> but you don't get to be a movement just with a committed founder or a founding group. So by the end of the growth phase, when this thing's really taking off, um, who the founder is, uh, the key identity aspects and strategy, the key, the unique strategies, are embedded in the lives and and the structures and the existence of the movement of many rather than just a few. Yes, and there are many any energy centers. You know, it's not just one or, uh, you know, an organization isn't a movement. It might serve a movement, but a movement is multiple um, organization, no organization, individuals, individual, the whole bit. There's a cause that they're following. And now everyone might remember the founder and the founder might still be alive, but it's no longer dependent on that person. Otherwise, we have what we call the founder trap where the founder's still in control and and won't release. So great founders, and Wesley did this, and it's it's wonderful too that they're all going to die, you know. <laughs> so the Lord's built in some, you know, planned obsolescence. Um, and so their job is to point to the identity and not just I want to be in control, but, guys, this is who we are. This is how what we what God has brought this movement into existence for. So they're a champion for that rather than their own control, their own, they serve a greater cause. So that that's really what you want to see right through the growth phase. And then when you begin to, to plateau, it's because look what we've gained. Look at our reputation. Look at the institutions we've built. Look at our place in society. Let's protect that. Yeah, let's and, yeah, yeah. Let's let's contain. And so fear becomes you. You become a conservative. 
Uh, you're not willing to risk everything because you have everything. Whereas back in the birth phase, you risk everything because you had nothing. You got nothing <laughs> you <know>? to lose. <laughs> yeah. So now, Rich, I can talk for probably another hour or two, but I think I should pause and let more questions come. <laughs> my, what, my final question, then I'm going to let these yeah. guys go, because from my perspective, it's the sh- what you're talking about is the the shift from one person's ministry to movement goes beyond one person's ministry. What are some of those transference points? How does that happen that it goes from one and a core group to many energy centers, many people, many champions? What what are some of the processes or patterns or practices that help help that transference so you don't get founder syndrome, but you do get multiple scale, multiple generations? Well, it is important that the founder in the very early stages of birth, certainly birth and then early stages of growth, doesn't just let go of control um, because it'll go off in in 100 different agendas and and, and directions. Um, But right from the beginning, great founders release authority and responsibility. And, I mean, the classic was Wesley. You know, um, sure, he was quite strict with his circuit riders who were the engine room of of the spreading movement. But even then, you know, he's giving young people huge responsibilities within the framework of this is who we are and this is our clear mission. And, um, you know, they're out on horseback. They're in remote parts of the UK. There's no, uh, there's no telephones or really railway or anything like that. And so they're putting, they're, they're being given responsibility and authority to make decisions and get things done because movements are action orientated. And then, you know, there's Asbury, you know, Francis Asbury, who's really the John Wesley of the United States. Um, well, he's, He's, what, months away by ship and letter. And um, and he loved John Wesley. But when Wesley, who was, uh, you know, a, a monarchist, you know, when the War of Independence came, you know, Asbury said, sorry, but, you know, we're not going to fight <laughs> against England, but neither are we just going to be English. We're going to be Americans. And, um, and so he remained loyal to Wesley, but fortunately, you know, he was a couple of months away by ship. And, um, and so he was really, again, releasing authority and responsibility. But then the key founders in, in those formative days, like a Francis or a Wesley, they are mo- they're on the road all the time. Um, moving amongst the circuit riders, the societies and churches that are forming, they're testing the health of the movement. So rather than stay back central, I'll be a big famous senior pastor, they're saying, no, you know, the world is my parish. Here I come. Um, So I I think that's the most important aspect. And then the continuing, and, you know, you mentioned about, you know, being faithful to the key principles. And I want to add something to that that I know you would. It's the wonderful thing. This is not just any other movement. The life of Christ. We have the life of Christ. This, and this is why Jesus could go with confidence. The Spirit is coming. Here's my word. And so when Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders, he, he just says, this is all I'm going to bequeath to you. You have the memory of my example. And, and he reminds them again. And then he says, you have the living word and you have the Holy Spirit. Now get on with the task. Um, that's, that's how at the right time it got embodied there in Ephesus. Uh, Steve, so I, I did have a question. You know, as, as this um, first or second generation of um, leaders, disciple makers in, in the larger movement are being released, um, the movement is flourishing, the, there's this organic transfer of values and principles and methodology it seems to me and you're going to have a larger historical perspective on this than I am that um, as it grows and there's then this temptation for maybe second or third or fourth generation um, influencers and leaders to start taking back as you noted earlier the power 
start taking back the control. It starts to become kind of institutionalized, potentially starts to stagnate. Um, there, there would be almost a cynical side of me or, or many others that would say, well, isn't that inevitable? How, do, how does a, a larger movement two, three, four generations down the line um, almost plan for? I mean, is it possible to plan for or avoid that potential pitfall? Um, and, or, or how have we seen that historically happen? I'm curious for my own um, information and to love to hear your perspective on that. Sure. Well, um, it's not cynical. Uh, if it is cynical, then the scriptures are cynical. Because built into, I mean, just let's just reflect on the New Testament. How much of the New Testament is about God through, uh, through the apostles and others calling God's people back to remember the first things? Um, so this is a continual refrain throughout Scripture. Uh, in the Gospels, the Epistles, and, you know, we get to the book of Revelation and the risen Lord is saying to the church at Ephesus, guys, if you don't get your act together, if, if you're not willing to be a witness for me in, in this place, I'm coming and I'm going to take your lampstand away. You'll no longer be a church. So the living Lord visits us in history, both organizations, individuals, churches, for discipline, to bring us back to first things. So this is a recurring pattern throughout really not just New Testament, the whole of Scriptures. Um, and so how do we deal with that? It's, it's, the word is often remember, remember. You know, Paul's just saying, you know, why are you getting away from the heart of the gospel you received? You know, you're being squeezed in, and it might be legalism and what we call today fundamentalism. Uh, or it might be the more progressive side of libertarianism and, and you know, but both, both of those evils are equally destructive. Um, so we're continually returning to the life of Christ, word, spirit, the core missionary task, and being renewed by that. Now, having said that, we, we all get crusty, <laughs> you know, any ministry, any church, any movement that's generations old is, you know, we're going to put a bit of weight on, we're getting slow and all that. How does God renew you at that point? Sometimes you just got to recognize, we call them legacy churches. We're a legacy church. We're big or we're traditional or whatever. Here's the key. Have children and grandchildren. That's a key to renewal. So there's both the discipline of getting back to your identity and then the other thing is, you know, I'm thinking of a church now in Houston. It's four and a half thousand. It's a great church. You know, they love world missions, all of that. It's a wonderful church. But they're a grandparent church and a great grandparent because they know, well, this is who we are. And a number of churches are doing this. So we're going to train our people in sharing the gospel, making disciples. So we've trained 1,600 people. Okay. Now we're going to find those who really grasp this and they're going to help us reach Houston. We're a church of four or 5,000, but we can't reach a city of 6 million. And there's lots of people never come through our doors. So they're multiplying simple, organic churches throughout um, Houston uh, under leadership of Don Waybright. Well, they're also doing the same thing in, in uh, Red Light District amongst prostitutes in Mumbai. There are hundreds, hundreds of discipleship groups meeting throughout the Texas prison system uh, because of here's a church and a key leader in Don Waybright, he's a missions pastor, who said, we're going to be renewed by becoming parents and grandparents. So there's, there's, there's guys in maximum security. There's guys in solitary that have been reached. And they've never heard the name of this church. So, so, you know, that's how we're renewed. Get back, look, get back to the life of Christ. You know, he's, he's surrendered to the Father in obedience, loving obedience. This is the heart of it. His dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit to achieve his task. And then he knows um, what 
his his role is. He knows what it is to multiply disciples um, and to raise up a movement who'll do that. So I'm preaching now, but yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Steve, just uh, about, you know, you. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're the one who put me onto this, but Rodney Stark and Roger Fink in the Church of yeah. America, when they talk about, you know, the kind of movement killers that were introduced into the life of the Methodist movement when they were you know, did the full-time training thing and took their church planters out and sent them off to do four years of MDiv studies. And and then actually is something I discovered later, 1860, the, the whole idea of suspension of um, of discipleship bans. You know, so they, they well, because this was a civil war, they suspended yeah. the need for it, but they never reinstituted it. Mm. And, uh, you know, and they've been in decline ever since, percentage to population, as you, you know. Yeah. But... Playing around with this idea of, of movement killers, you know, the things that we're doing now that are blocking our movement capacities, switch it around a little bit and give us some advice on that. You know, what's the ones that we've got to grapple with? In well, in, in a disciple-making movement, um, you wake up every morning and you're going to ask yourself, who has God prepared for me to meet today? And, and it's as simple as that. Jesus wakes up in the morning and he's probably in a strange place because his missional community is continually on the move, opening up new towns and villages, forming beachheads through those persons of peace, knowing that one day we're going to, someone's going to circle back, you know, to, to this place. But he's, he's out there with people. And, uh, Alan, you know what an introvert I am. <laughs> and this has been one of the deep sort of chastenings and disciplines of God in my life is, and, and this is what happened when we went and did the second church plant. Steve, three days a week, you're going to be out looking for people far from God and engaging them um, with the good news about Jesus and, and teaching them how to follow Christ one step at a time. And so sometimes we make it so complicated but let's boil this thing down. Let's, let's look afresh at what did Jesus do and what does that look like today? And his, his methods and mission were, were incredibly profound and incredibly transferable and simple. Um, so I think one of the key things is losing that heart for people and the confidence because he says, Come follow me. That's his command to every disciple. And then to every disciple, he gives this promise, I'll teach you how to fish for people. That's his agenda. People are his agenda. And then in the Great Commission, you know, go make disciples. And as you obey me in this and, and go to the ends of the earth, I will be with you always. So the thing that keeps an, a movement dynamic going is that engagement on the front line with people and the encounter we have with Christ in the mission field. People think, oh, I, I just need to worship, soak up, and when the Holy Spirit tells me, you know, I'll go and do that, you know, I, I don't, that's not a rhema for me yet. That's just the logos I've heard someone say. What rubbish. Jesus is in the harvest field, you know, how long does it take for them to get at the outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, into the marketplace? And that's what movements do. You know, I talked to Don Weber. Nobody knows about Don. Well, sorry, Don, if you're listening. But it's not like he's a name out there in the world of Christianity. But he has hundreds of prisoners who are following Christ. And you think about the impact on their friends, their family. He's got prostitutes in Mumbai. He's not just handing out, you know, I'm sure they are providing, you know, material resources for them. But those women have come to know Christ. So Don's my expert, but no one's listening to Don. You know, I want people with fresh stories. Of, of, you know, just like I read in the Gospels of this woman who met Jesus, this blind man who met, and, and how 
their lives were transformed by 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 a work of God. And so I think that's the big killer is probably it's both that heart for the Lord, but finding him in 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 the harvest field, in the world. Wow. Well, your passion is unabated. If anything, I mean there's a clarity, honestly. I mean, you've always you've always been compelling. And your grasp and your love of history particularly is like unique, you know, your, your capacity to track these things in history. But I just want to say it's very, very moving and very inspiring to kind of speak to you. you know? So it's great stuff. Well, honestly, Alan, looking back to those days we shared drinking coffee in Campbell, I feel like I've been on this incredible journey down all sorts of what I thought were dead ends and disasters and all of that. And, you know, and on this journey, sort of wrestling to understand as a practitioner and, and in scripture and history what movements are about. And then, and 10 years ago, you'll know, because of my depression, I thought the whole thing was over. I was, I was just going to go and work in a hardware store, you know, drive taxis. And God encountering me in that time and then bringing more breakthroughs. And, you know, T.S. Eliot has this lovely poem about, you know, we've been on this incredible journey and, 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 and then to arrive at where we started, but yeah. to know that place for the first time. Love it. And, and it's, it's like I started here, I've been on this incredible, and now I've come back and it's almost like to where I began, but I'm a different person. And I just feel like, you know, we're all caught up in something God is doing. You know, he's been shaping us for these days we're in right now. Indeed. So good. You know, Steve, I'm, I'm wondering if you, if there's somebody listening to this who's, you know, thinks that they're a movement leader, is wanting to be a movement leader, or is an actual movement leader, and they're, they're, they've noticed that they're on the other side of that, of the curve, right? So, so they're in a cycle that's kind of going down. Um, you know, I've, I'm interested in, in what you think, you know, is it possible to turn that back up? And, you know, by looking at Jesus, having babies, or do you think as the movement leader, they need to just understand that their season is done and they need to find a way to let the organization separate from their season curve. So even though that they, you know, may decrease, that everything else may increase, or do they have a responsibility to help pull that into a renewal phase? And, and so just tracking the organization growth curve and, and life cycle with the, with the leader growth curve and life cycle, I'm just, I'm interested in what coaching and counsel you might give to a, a movement leader in that space. Yes. Well, and well, I don't just do the life cycle, but we have a whole chapter on, uh, rebirthing or renewing a movement and there are case studies and there are some great principles in scripture one of it is to return to that identity piece the word the spirit and the mission and to do that personally so i can only sort of share my experience but i'm i'm the world's worst evangelist you know i my favorite place in the world is a library <laughs> You know, that's where, unless I'm going for a walk on the beach or whatever, but that's, that's, that's what I'm like. And, and I wrote the first book, Movements That Changed the World. Michelle said, um, Steve, great book, but when are you going to do something? And we just started prayer walking our neighbourhood and um, encountering internationals. You know, there's quite a multicultural area right near us with thousands of people from around the world. God opened up a whole ministry to, uh, you know, refugees, migrants, foreign students. And within the next few years, just as we applied some of the stuff we were learning, we, we saw more people come to Christ and go into discipleship than the whole of our lives put together at that point. And so I, I say to leaders, you're busy. Um, you don't have a lot of to do what I did. I just committed an hour and a half a week on a Sunday afternoon just to do what Jesus did. Go and find someone, pray for them, share the good news, make a disciple. And that changed me. And now 
And I tell pastors especially, don't deconstruct your church. Don't just read my book or get all excited and dump that on you. Don't do that. You know, all your energy is going to go into these higher structural things, whereas, you know, Jesus is wanting to reform Israel and he's just, well, let's grab some guys and let's go find some people in need. You know, <laughs> that's how it begins. But the other thing I say is if you do this, if you start applying these things and you start getting back into uh, the harvest, it will change you. And let that change reverberate throughout your structures and your timetables and let that change in you make decisions about your future, whether you should still be leading that organisation or whatever. And then form um, partnerships, coalitions, teams that are also engaged and not, not just this is not just about evan- people think, only hear, the, oh, you're an evangelist, Steve. Well, I'm not. And it's not, evangelists make some of the worst disciple makers, you know. But evangelism is the step to get to a disciple. And sometimes, anyway, so get back in engaged and form teams and coalitions and let that bubble away. And this is happening, right? You can listen to the podcasts. We've got tens of stories of where this is happening around the world and around the US. Um, so you allow positive change to, to create the momentum. But oftentimes it is, you know, the, the church that I mentioned, Sugar Creek Baptist, you know, church of four or 5,000. They're not deconstructing the church. They're saying, look, this is who we are, but we're also going to multiply these new initiatives. And I think that's all, and, and, and allow those new initiatives to influence who we are. So you're not fighting a structure war. You're actually getting back into action and allowing, you know, when you start hearing stories of lives transformed, that, that unfreezes you far better than a demographic study. Let me tell you that. I love how you're coaching people not to deconstruct their church and and, and telling these stories that, that unlock and awaken people. Um, I wonder if, you know, the temptation seems to me that, that the church can live vicariously off of the stories of, mm-hmm. of us, right? It, there's, a, there's, a, there's this weird vampire thing where one church isn't doing anything, but they heard of this other church that's doing something. And so, you know, God's moving. And so we're okay. Um, How do you, how, how do you think that we can tell the story of movements, especially as a hundred movements and we want to champion this, how, how can, what coaching would you give us so where we can tell these stories, but it doesn't create this false, I don't know, this this false comfort yeah. that God's doing it somewhere so I don't actually have to engage. And, mm. and, and we would live vicariously off of the fruit of someone else's life. Okay. Well, I'm going, I'm going to be very unpastoral now. And I'm going to say... Um, Tell us the truth. <laughs> they're in, let's be charitable. They're perhaps uh, the later adopters. And what you're looking for are early adopters and and the early majority who will come on board with this. So you cast a broad net. You know, we go, we if, if we have time, we will go anywhere to train anyone to get started. And then we pour fuel, you know, follow up with more training and coaching for practitioners who are make, who are making some progress. The stories come from them and they become the ones who bring others on board. You know, at Michelle and my job was done in England in three and a half years. I mean, we worked hard, but God gave us a national network and some key leaders who were born for this, you know, and they're away now. You know, I, I can go on holiday and they work hard. So the principle is, though, um, you, you cast that net broad and you watch for who's quick to obey and implement. And that's, that's your leverage point. Now, we're not rejecting everybody else who wants to live vicariously, but if there's a hope for them, 
it's because those early adopters and that early majority are going to bring them on board. Um, and so it's a bit like triage. When you arrive in a crisis situation, you, your heart goes out to the person about to bleed to death, whereas you actually need to grab the guy, put a tourniquet on his arm, and he's just got like a flesh wound and say, quick, put your hand here. You've got to start mobilising other people, not the people who are least likely to respond. That's good. Unless you're a pastor and then you just sit with them and love them. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a call to do that. <laughs> you know, I did have a question. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, identity and uh, I think, that has always been really compelling to me, especially that story of Christ with the baptism in the wilderness. And, you know, there's this personal identity that has been formed or is certainly being tested. And then there's this group identity that you mentioned. Um, and with movement leaders, uh, let's say you're, you know, you're speaking to someone now who is leading a movement, is on the verge or emerging into a movement. Um what are some keys in helping, I guess, establish, I think this idea of group identity is really powerful in terms of transferring DNA. This is who we are. This is what we do in a healthy way. I mean, there's, there's unhealthy group identity. Um, how does that get transferred? And then how does a leader do that? Because I, I imagine with that, in terms of uh, group identity and then equipping and, and sending out, there's also this balance or this potential fear with maintaining power and control which seem to be movement killers. So mm -hmm. how does someone balance that in terms of this is who we are, this is how we release and empower and, and be willing to do that in a healthy way where they don't get controlling or want power back, but they can also have boundaries. That seems like a dance, and I imagine there, there may be people, including myself, who are curious what that looks like. Yeah, well, and, and you cannot go far wrong in just mining the scriptures for the leadership, what Jesus' leadership looked like, how he went through those stages with, with uh, his folks. And same thing for the, the life of Paul, who we have a lot of information about. You know, ultimately that leader, it's, it's not about, it isn't about control. It's not even about their organisation. It's about the cause. and. This cause, this is the wonderful advantage we have. You know, we have the living word. We have the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have the clear mission that Jesus gave us. And so one of the ways is you keep pushing the frontier out. You know, so you're going to be able to control it if your vision is we're going to be a church of a 1,000 or 2,000 or we're going to be this or that. What happens if the vision is, say, a Don Waybright is, is no place left? You know, from Romans 15, Paul's saying there's no place left now, you know. In other words, what does it look like for the prison system to be reached? What does it look like for a city of six and a half million in Houston to be reached? Well, Don can't do that, but that's his vision. So automatically he's driven to building teams and coalitions, to giving stuff away around that cause. And so I think it's staying focused, not just on the organisation, and but what does that, that organisation, what cause does it serve? And that gives you the authority then to critique how you're doing, but also to say, look, if there are others, other people have this same heart and maybe a tweak here and there, well, they're part of us too. We don't all have to agree exactly how we're going to do this thing, but we are going to work off each other and build off each other. So I think it's staying focused on, on the cause. And as you continually, you know, uh, he doesn't like me always mentioning his name, but one of my heroes is a guy called Jeff Sundell, another guy that not many people have heard of. Um, but, you know, the impact he's had. Well, I'm at an event and maybe there's 30 or 40 guys in the room and they're all making an impact in different parts of the world. And we're there two or three days. And the most senior person... And the sharpest person in the room is Jeff Sundell. 
and he gets up maybe once in the whole two days. And the rest of the time, he's up the back cheering the guys that he's developing, okay? He'll hate me for telling this story, but other people need to hear it, Jeff, you know. And so, and why is that? Now, one is he's got, he's got a father's heart for the leaders that he's growing. The other thing is his vision is so vast, he can't get the job done if he's up the front, you know. He's got to find, you know, good people and, and he's continually growing people and giving them authority and responsibility. Again, I just think, you know, your wisdom, um, it's, a, it's a feast, brother. It's good to hear it, you know, just rich kind of, you know, again, from a reflective practitioner of some age like me, you know, uh, but it's just great wisdom, you know, you're, you know conferring on others. Uh, tell us a little bit, bro, about uh, the book, the latest yeah. book, uh, and then, you know, what was the distinctive about it that, you know, it's, it's movement thinking that you've written on before. And then, uh, so give us the distinctive. And then I'd like to also know what you're doing back in Oz and, you know, just a bit of your biographical stuff where people might be interested again, you know. Sure. But yes, to tell us a bit first about the book. Well, uh, the book is uh, The Rise and Fall of Movements, A Roadmap for Leaders. And the distinctive thing is in, in the past, we've taken a snapshot. Here's the characteristics of a dynamic movement, you know, in a moment in time, ideally. Um, what the life cycle does is it, it gives you more of a time release over the stages of the rise and the fall and hopefully the renewal of movements. So we look at the progress over time, both the, the, the great stuff and the things that bring movements undone. Um, and then at each stage from birth, growth, maturity, decline and decay, for each stage, uh, we just say, well, what are the key leadership tasks in this stage to, to either bring the thing back out of decline? There's no hope in decay. Uh, you just, the leadership task is to watch and learn, <laughs> you know, but either bringing it back or, or riding the curve up and beyond. So what are the tasks? What are the challenges for a leader at, at each stage? And where it applies, um, you know, not everybody gets to shape the whole thing. You know, really, for every thousand people, you might have one movement leader or more. You know, I mean, 10,000 people. But we all participate in some way in a context. You know, the context we're in, the ministry we're in, or the wider context is at a stage of development in the in in the life cycle, and we can we can steward that responsibility by understanding the context and then applying things. What's the name of the book again, Steve? Just for oh yeah, the rise and fall of movements: a roadmap for. Thanks to 100 Movements for making that interview available and for publishing The Rise and Fall of Movements, a Roadmap for Leaders. I'm Steve Addison and this has been the 200th episode of the Movements Podcast.